Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Brooke Walker. Brooke is a life architect, and she's devised a specific blueprint that you can use to go from A to Z in your life, whatever that thing is that you want to create. She's got an event coming up, and we're going to dive into her world and collect her story today, and then she's going to tell you a little bit more about some things that you can plug into if you are so inclined. So, Brooke, welcome up, girl. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm uh, excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Uh, We did a little pre-interview, and you started telling me some really interesting things, so... I want to start at the beginning and just collect a snapshot of your life. I'm wondering if you could just give me a little glimpse of what Little Brooks' life was like, <laughs> and we'll just sort of walk through some things. Okay. Uh, born in Austin, Texas. Still, still love Austin, Texas. It's a great um, town, from what I'm here. It's an amazing town. A lot of fun out there. A lot of fun out there. It's getting a little busy, getting Is a it? little hipstery, yeah. and getting a little overly expensive. Mm. But outside of that, I absolutely do love Austin still. Do you consider yourself a Texan? Oh, uh, that's that's hard for me to own that. Um, I guess because I like Austin, but it doesn't mean that I relate totally <laughs> with the Texas vibe. <laughs> because I think Austin's a little different, you know. It's it like is. calling yourself a California person if you're from, you know, San Francisco. Sometimes people don't always own that. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I I do love Arizona. I've been here since I was a kid, and I do absolutely do love it here. So, um, but yeah. So when um, I've got uh, older sister, younger brother, and another younger sister, and uh, and a even older sister, not to make it too confusing, <laughs> but um, grew up grew up in Austin for a long time. Moved out to Maryland for a little bit, um, and uh, that's where my grandparents were was up in the DC area and then when we when I was about eight years old we moved out here to Arizona and uh, at the time I guess I can give a little bit of backstory on it so I don't even know how much to go into this you might want to cut some of that but (laughs) um you just tell your story we'll sort that out at the end okay so my parents so when my parents were young they got together when they were really young so they um they ended up my mom ended up getting pregnant and so she had, she had a baby, I believe she was 15 or 16. I think she was pregnant at 15, didn't have, end up having the baby until she was 16. Okay. So at the time, my parents were actually, my, you know, they were told they would not be together, you know, it was back in the day. Like was, they wouldn't last or? Uh, you know, my, no, my grandparents would not let them. Oh, I see. My grandparents would not let them I be see. together. Yeah. So um, I think the biggest part of that too is, so my mom was sent away to a home for unwed mothers. And then, you know, you're thrown back in school pretty mm-hmm. much day after you have the baby. That's the way it was back then. Wow. So then my parents ended up getting back together and staying together. And so there they are and they have, they start having more kids. And I think that, you know, coming from that kind of background and not really having any way to work that kind of stuff out, they were always looking for something a little bit more um, meaningful. And I think the average church wasn't really doing it for them. So they had met a couple that used to go around and do different types of trainings. Um, and you can think of it similar to, you know, Landmark Forum, asked those types of things. Um, but also she was a trans medium, so they would go around and do that. And my parents were drawn to it. Um, so can you explain just what a trans medium is? I don't um, think a lot of people understand. I think there's different term. types of trans mediums, but specifically to her, she would trance a spirit... Okay. That would come through and speak and give spiritual guidance. 
Like she was channeling some she was someone channeling. or something. Yeah. Okay. She would channel a specific a specific spirit. Okay. Yeah. He was a doctor, so and he would come through and he would speak. And I still don't um, like. I've had different people say, "Do you think that that was real?" And I do. I just think if you've ever played the game, um, what do you call it? If you ever played the game telephone. Yep. Oh yeah. You know, depending on the person giving the message depends on how clear it comes through. Sure. And I think sometimes the message was really clear, and I think other times it was incredibly manipulated. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, it kind of reminds me of like Abraham Hicks, I guess you'd say, type yeah. thing. In fact, when I started listening to Abraham Hicks, if I would have known she was a medium, I probably would have been turned off. But <laughs> I actually love Abraham Hicks. Do you? I do. That's fantastic. Yeah. So was it the fact that your parents ran into this couple who were doing these trainings that you guys ended up moving? Or did that have that nothing is. to do with it? So they, so they had gotten involved with them. So we first we moved up to Maryland, which was where my, where my grandparents lived. And, you know, my dad was, um, they were looking to, and, and I just, I think that there was just still something missing in that relationship from what I understand. I was still really young at the time. Um, and I think because of all of that, I think if there had been something stronger there, maybe we wouldn't have ended up moving out to Arizona to move towards these people, but that's what we ended up doing. And, a lot, you know, I mean, I think at the height of this church, which was Church of Immortal Consciousness, I think at the height of it, it was probably in the range of 200 people. It was never it was never enormous. Um, they had some specific beliefs. They were, I mean, I think outside of the normal, what we would call a cult, I, you know, they weren't... Po- they didn't practice polygamy. There was none of that kind of stuff. Um, there was um, there was definitely a set of teachings that were put forward and expectations to follow those. And I think that it fell into the you know the having to believe a certain way and also not being able to question that belief. I think that that's a big one as well. You know, the idea that this is the way it is and you won't you you don't question that. Right. So we moved out here when I was eight. And it was uh, my old, my older sister, me, and my younger brother. My younger sister, I think my mom was pregnant when we moved, so she wasn't even born yet. Mm. Now, had your parent? Were your parents still together at this point? Yeah, my parents are still together. Okay. Yeah, my parents have been together forever. That's awesome. <laughs> they last and stood the test of time. <laughs> they have. They have been through a lot. They've been through a lot, and I love and I love them dearly. They're you know we get along really well, but we've definitely been through a lot, especially from from going through all of that. Yeah, I can imagine the stories they could tell. But I'm curious, like, when you, you mentioned the, what did you call the Church of Immortal Consciousness? Consciousness. Yeah. So when the people that your parents met came and would teach or do a seminar or whatever, what sorts of things were they espousing? I mean, I'm half guessing. Like, I kind of have an idea just because I know kind of some of the stuff that went on over the years. But, mm-hmm. but they would teach, you know, some of it would be based off of, you know, the spirit that she did, that she, um, tranced some of it would be based off of, you know, relationships. When I compare it to like a landmark and those kind of things, it was very like, how do you take responsibility, Mm. taking responsibility, you know? So, so there was some basic teachings and things that, that people, um, are very drawn to that. I think that most people would still be drawn to a lot of that, that they, that they did for sure. You know, and it was about, it was about getting a better relationship with people and communicating well and stuff like that. 
So, and they were very loving in a lot of different ways, but the deeper that you got in, the more it just got um, controlling and abusive mm. and alcoholic. I see. So they kind of wanted to manage your life for you sort of a thing. Yes. I mean, once you, you know, once they created the collective, because they didn't always have it, but once they created this collective community, whatever you want to call it, it was named different things over the year, depending on whatever. But once it was created, it became, you know, there were definitely more, that's when I think that things got more manipulative. So there was relationships that got um, closed, you, you know, people who were in definitely closed off relationships with people outside. Not that you didn't have any relationship, but it was definitely less. And anything that you did go through, it was, if you had a pain point, they pressed on it. So obviously with my parents' background and having what they had, they would, they would always make a big deal out of that with my grandparents, which looking back now looks incredibly like it was just a manipulation to try and be able to get more money from my grandparents because my grandparents were very well off. Actually, I would say as cults go, they definitely, the people that they had collected mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all had incredibly wealthy families. Really? Yeah. Do you think that was intentional? Yes. <laughs> so I'm curious, when you say the word church, my mind goes to Christianity. Obviously, that, that was the tradition that I was raised in, right? My parents right. were big into the Baptist church and rural GA, right? So was the, when you say church, is, was there a, like a biblical component or is it just the term that you used to they describe the group? They were considered non-denominational, but not non-denominational in the Christian sense of non-denominational. Cause I know there's a lot of Christian churches that consider themselves non-denominational. They were non-denominational in the sense of it didn't really matter what your faith was. Mm-hmm. And they're still there today in Payson going strong. Not going strong, no. I don't. I really don't know who actually is. I mean, I do know a few people who are still involved. Um, they they did have a school. Um, my understanding is that their charter just that they just lost their charter uh, recently. Okay. So, as a child coming up in this, what were some of your impressions of what was happening? Did you have an awareness that this might be somewhat constrictive, or were you just sort of, hey, this is this is my life? Well. It's a good question. So there's a lot of different parts of it. So first of all, you know, you're surrounded by a bunch of different people and a bunch of different kids. So as a kid, there's, you're surrounded by a bunch of other children. So you have a lot of people to hang out with and play with. And, you know, we were, you know, we would all be thrown together on a regular basis to do different activities and stuff like that. And a lot of the times that's because the adults would go and sit and do what they called processing. So they would actually all get together very regularly depending on what was going on and all sit in a room and process whatever needed to be worked through, which um, I think there'd probably be constructive ways that somebody could have done this, but they didn't use any of those. (laughs) So they mostly drank a lot and smoked a lot of cigarettes and yelled at each other a lot. Uh So it was very, it was very dysfunctional and uh, oftentimes incredibly cruel. And then, um, as, so when we were younger, we would usually be babysat by, you know, whoever the older generation was, which was usually like my sister's age. You know, they were always, there would be weekend ones where they would spend an entire day doing processes. And so all the teenagers watched all the younger kids for the entire day while they would all sit in a house and just rip each other to shreds for the most part. That was kind of what they did. And so you kind of got the impression over the years whether some things, you know, some things are really blatant and some things were really um, undertones. And so you, you just would get an impression over the years of what you should and shouldn't do 
And when you fell out of line, you were um, made to get back in real quick. So there was a lot of um, different ideas about how you're supposed to grow up and what your expectation was supposed to be. And so, you know, we went to went to school and there's there's the, you know, there was definitely a hierarchy, you know, so you knew that their kids or their kids were definitely on the top of the hierarchy. As much as it was always said that there wasn't, they always talked about it being a feminine-based teaching, which was funny because there was nothing feminine-based about any part of it. Um, but I guess you can label something and make up your own rules for what it means if you want. <laughs> yes, you can. Absolutely. So when you say when you say they, are you referring to like the leaders in the community? Yeah. 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 So their kids took precedence sort of a thing? Yes. And how did that manifest itself in the community? Um well, they were always the ones who were expected to take over. They were the ones who did a lot of the teaching of things. So uh, some of their kids were also the um, other ministers in the church as the years went by. And they, and you know, I mean, and they married all their kids off to people who were much older. So of, of their daughters, most of them were married off to somebody who was, you know, 10 to 20 years older. Really? Yeah. And, and what was the reasoning behind that? Or was there any? I don't know. It seems to be a common theme in some, you know, of the organizations that we would term cults is that young women are married off to older men. Right? I don't understand I, that. I don't, I don't either. Yeah, it makes I, no I don't sense know. to me. I, I would say that it was probably money motivated, but I'm not really sure. Huh. Like their oldest daughter was married off to an attorney. That's interesting. They're still together. I, I, I can't even, I don't even like talking to a young woman. Like that, we have nothing in common, can't relate on any level. So. I, I don't get it. They're, the, they're, their sons weren't, but their their daughters were all married off to much older. Interesting stuff, man. Uh huh. So yeah, how did and, you, and not did necessarily anybody else. They did that. I wouldn't say that nec- that necessarily went along with everybody else so much. So just like, the leadership was. Yeah, that was just the le- like. Yeah, that was just their kids, mm. them and their kids. But like looking at it now, like, I mean. Most of them got in relationships when they were, and actually most, most, most of the relationships that were started were started in your teens. Mm. So you were, you know, told that you were going to be put together with somebody and then they would decide one day. Now to find out years later that a lot of the, so they, they had the, you know, what they would call, I guess what you call a, you know, your soulmate, they use the word like vibration and you would be put together with your like vibration. And that is, you know, I guess what most people would consider a soulmate, right? Yeah. And um, but over over the years uh, after leaving and hearing about that, there's a <laughs> there's there's a lot of people there that the people were put with people for money. I see. So it was like, well, we'll put this person with this person because it'll be good. It, it was it was their opinion versus this idea that we were sold that this was some spiritual union. Does that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It, it sounds very new agey. You know, like, yeah. I mean, it really does. You, you don't really think of, of that sort of existing in small town Americana in a way. But when you're talking about. Well, it was originally in Mesa. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you're talking about channeling spirits. Yeah. Right. You're talking about like vibration. I mean, these are very new age terms. Right. And to, to be talking about this kind of out in the sticks, you know, that's that seems to be a bit of a mismatch in terms of environment versus the persona that you would think would come out of that environment. Very much so. Very much so. And I think that's why it got really uncomfortable in Payson. So they, so they were originally in, so we were originally in Mesa and they just kind of, so, so she had a family home up there. So that's how they kind of started, ended up 
going up there. So it used to be just a weekend place that people would go here and there. And then over time, it turned into something that, you know, people just really started kind of moving up there. Better weather, better this, better that. I don't sure. know. Um, and that's when, you know, when I was, I was a teenager when around that time. So at the time... So we, had a, so we had a school down here, but then the school moved up there. So I went to public school for a couple of years. Otherwise, I had always gone to, since living out here, to the private school. Eventually, they did get a charter. But, um, and when I was 15, I actually got pulled out of school to start working. So that was, that was a common theme, too, is most people didn't actually get the chance to finish school. And I ended up getting my GED. Okay. And I mean, I got, you know, I mean, I eventually went back to school, and I have a bachelor's in psychology now. Sure. But yeah, at 15, I was pulled out of school to start working because it was because I was told I needed to start serving. Um, and that was common. So that was common. Teenagers, most, most teenagers didn't finish the high school. Nope, most wow. of them didn't. I don't. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't. Th- I don't even. I don't think men did more than women for sure. Um, but it just depended on what you were told you were supposed to do. You didn't really have a choice about it. It wasn't like I want to be a doctor when I grow up. But it, so it was all couched in the story of service. Uh-huh. We need you to start serving. Yeah. But by the same token, it seems like that would also create dependency. You know, you're coming out with no high school diploma, for example, right? <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, what can I even do with no high school diploma? Certainly no college degree. Right. Right. Or it is. It is. It is a very dependent. But how do you keep people? How do you keep people needing you? Yeah, you make them dependent. You make them dependent. A, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It seems like this is kind of part of the plan so to speak that's that's why I like look back sometimes and I was like that was brilliant if you if if, if you yeah. <laughs> if you think about it about like you and that's the thing like you know as a teenager and then growing up so you know I was you know put in a relationship really at 17 put and, in not chosen uh yeah I was put in put in okay. definitely put in and your siblings same way same sort of yeah thing? yeah I, I mean I my sister was a little more, my older sister was a little more rebellious for sure. Um, so there was, there was a little, it was a little bit different and it changed a little over the years. It became, it, you know, but there was always this, and there was a lot of threats about relationships too. It was like, if you weren't doing what you should be doing in your relationship, you could be torn apart at any time and be put with somebody else. So it, it, it was very hypocritical on this whole idea of like, like vibration, because it was like your like vibration until we don't like what you're doing and then we choose to do whatever we want to do to you. But, but you live in such a fear-based, um, you're, you're under such a fear-based idea about the way things are that, that you don't really know any different, you know, and, and it's not like you have outside resources anyway. So, um, you don't have friends outside. You've been going to, you're in the same faith as everybody around you. You've go out, gone to the same school as everybody around you. So you may have a few connections outside, which I did and everybody did, but they weren't like your real family, you know? And, and it was, so there was always this idea about it versus what the reality was too. And I mean, and as teenagers, I mean, even as teenagers, I mean, when you're a rebellious teenager and everything is incredibly hypocritical around you, which it was, um, you know, but like, what are you going to do? You're right. going to run away and go where? You don't even have any friends out. You, you have what, two or three dysfunctional friends outside of it? Sure. It's not like you're going to go sleep on their couch and live with them or anything <laughs> like that. You're going to end up, you're going to end up back, right back where you started. Yeah. And you have no resources, right? So what are you going to do? No yeah. relationships. So I'm curious, uh, I spoke to one of my previous interviews was uh, escapee from the Mennonites. 
Okay. And it was sort of a similar situation where there was ostracism involved with, you know, not going along with the crowd sort of a thing. But they were also restricted from having any contact to, you know, pop culture or television or radio. Was it like that for you or is that? No, we had a lot of that. Okay. So you did have some exposure to what was going on at the, you know, in the world at large. No, we definitely had exposure. I mean, we, all of the businesses, I mean, pretty much everybody was in a business that was created, Okay, you know, so very few people worked at other places. So, um, my dad's an attorney. He's had a law practice for years. So um, I worked for him for a long time. Um, there's, uh, you know, my mother was a midwife and so she used to deliver babies, which was, you know, a lot of people getting babies delivered in Mesa back in the day Right. for a lot of, you know, <laughs> um, and then, uh, what are some of the other businesses? So there was a restaurant. They had a restaurant for a long time up in Payson, um, construction business. Uh, and these were just the various members of the community? Yeah. And their businesses? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it doesn't sound like you were too sheltered from the outside world. No, we weren't sheltered from the outside. Oh, we used to, we had, we had our own sweatshop. <laughs> you had your own sweatshop. <laughs> I got to hear this. So um, So you were chained to sewing machines, <laughs> making socks for 25 oh, cents chillers. a day? Chillers. Chillers. Okay. No, we didn't get paid for anything. No, I mean, like, we, if it was a family business, you didn't get paid. Right. You had, we, we literally had food delivered to the door. Really? Okay. Yes, there would, they, they would order food, and it would be <laughs> delivered, a box of food would be delivered to your door once a week. And then we had a, um, a little thing down the road that had, like, necessities like flour, salt, you know, that kind of stuff. And whatever was in the box was whatever in the bo- was in the box. And then occasionally there would be um, a grocery shop that you could be part of, but you probably were never going to get what you wanted anyway. And then, th- and there was, there was a few things that there was splurges on. Mm. Like Christmas was a splurge. Mm. We probably had bigger Christmases than the average person. That was the one time you spent money and that was the one time you were allowed to spend money on anything. Um, but there was a lot of things over the years that you never did get either. It's like, you know, like shoes, there was a <laughs> imaginary shoe list. So, um, there was, you know, people would ask to be put on the shoe list to get shoes and really, yeah. <laughs> why were shoes so hard to come by? I mean, it sounds like you had productive people in your community, right? Well, they were productive, but nobody worked for anybody that was making any money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so like thinking of it from a business perspective, right? I mean, it was just really horribly run. So we had the sweatshop that I call it. It was, right. and we would sew chillers. So chillers are those um, those things for when it's hot. You wrap them around. You get them wet and you wrap them around your neck. Okay. And yeah. they come in like the various different fabrics and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So they got this contract from this woman to start selling them, and so we would sit around. And I mean. <laughs> When you think about the fact that we'd have a room of, I don't know how many women sewing these fucking things that were just, (laughs) and they probably made 30 grand off of it. If any one of them had gotten a decent job, it would have more than made up for what all of us sat around doing. Right. Yeah. That's insane. But it sounds a lot like growing up in my parents' house. (laughs) My payment was my room and board sort of a thing. You're under my roof sort of a thing. This is how it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, we weren't kids. That's anymore. tough. Yeah, so you had you obviously you know you'd mentioned that different members of the community had different businesses that they yeah. would run, but the wealth sort of didn't pass through the hands of everyone in the community. Just a few business owners or service providers, or how did that work? Um, no, it was very. It was it changed over the years, but for the most part, it was there was 
you know, if you had your own business, you either tied through the church, which was very much, but at the same time, a lot of money was just collective mm. and it depended on where it was at over the years. There was a certain point when there was a very um, collective way that they did finances. So they would pool all the funds and sort of. Yeah. Well, and when 90% of the people don't make any money, I mean, which for me has been one of those things I've had to deal with where I've had to get over over the years. Because my dad did make very good money over the years. He was an attorney. He did very well. But when that gets shared among a bunch of other people, not necessarily. But and then they had and, you know, I mean, there was a lot of things that went on. We had a you know, there was a there was a big lawsuit because we were on the news at one point. Um, So after the stuff had started up in Payson after a while, it had gotten really ugly because the sheriff had heard a bunch of rumors that were going around and a lot of them were actually I mean I I will admit yes it is a cult <laughs> but um he was there was different people telling rumors that we sold babies that we used to dance around fires naked like all this different just random bullshit right um so he started a file on us and he wouldn't do anything. And so there was some, you know, kind of rednecky people around who, you know, try to run people off the road and stuff. Really? Yeah. So, and, and there was different death threats and all kinds of stuff. And you didn't know what was or wasn't real. And it was right after Waco happened. And here we are, this incredibly weird group of people. And it was like, well, they're a cult too. And they, we were, but we weren't stockpiling weapons or there was no, you know, child abuse in that sense, not in, not in the, <laughs> so after that, I don't know exactly how it all came down. I was a teenager again at that time, but they en- ended up getting, first they got bodyguards and then they got, and I mean, that was ridiculous too. Like there was barely, I mean, there was a lot of times where was, a lot of people didn't have, felt like there was barely any food to eat. And then all of a sudden we're hiring these bodyguards. And then after that, they end up getting, um, channel 15 to come out it was like or maybe it was channel three i don't know one of the one of the channels it was on your side or whatever they do i don't even know which channel it was at this point but they they end up coming out and doing a news story which was very weird how did they paint you guys on the news story or did you guys weird weird strange that was actually part of the reason yeah i'm trying to remember if that was before or after so then there was a big lawsuit with them and then there was a big lawsuit with rick ross who's a uh, um he's a cult deprogrammer Mm mm-hmm and he had written a whole, he had done a whole thing about us and actually did this whole thing, which you can find that in the New Times. There's a whole thing in the New Times about, you know, him talking about it at ASU and um, the the main guy, the main, one of the cult leaders had actually confronted him at ASU. So it's in the, it's just, so there was all this different stuff. And then there was, so they had sued Channel 15. They'd sued um, Rick Ross and... Maybe somebody else. I'm trying to think there was somebody else in there. But anyway, that all. Um, and then Trina actually ended up trancing in court after that whole incident. So there's that that was on the front page of the Arizona Republic. So as much as it was like a small group of people, there was actually quite a bit that went out at different times. Yeah, you said trancing in court? Yeah, she tranced in court. Okay. So then that, of course, just I'm sure added fuel to the fire. Well, I mean, I think it kind of calmed things down because it got it out there to some degree. I don't, okay. So it was less strange to people? I don't, you know, I don't know. It's it's weird to look back at something with a completely different perspective than when you were in it. Right. You know, it's like, it's like being in an abusive relationship and not realizing it's abusive and then looking back and going, oh, that was really fucked up. <laughs> so, so I look back at some of it and I'm like, 
oh, okay, well, that was really weird, you know. And then, I don't know sometimes, right? you know. Yeah, so you took me up through the teen years, right? But you said you stayed with this group of people until you were in your 30s? Well, I had my kids at, I mean, I had my kids at um, 19 and 21. Through this arranged coupling, this arranged marriage, I'm assuming? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't totally indifferent to him, but I also wasn't, you know, I, I, it was, a lot of it was, it was an expectation. Mm-hmm. Like I knew that I had to get married and, you know, he had, um, kind of came along. He was one of the bodyguards brothers. Okay. So he ends up showing up and I was definitely like, okay, you know, I was more or less put together with him. And but he wasn't a member of the community though, then. No, he, he moved up there about, about a week later. He was chasing you down. I, no, it had nothing to do. It really had nothing to do with me. <laughs> so then, um, so that seems strange though that they would pair you with someone who came in from the quote unquote outside of the community. Yeah, anybody who came along, they'd pair with somebody. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's the best way to get you in. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I guess you're right. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That is that is a powerful motivator for sure. Uh-huh. So, so it's he the greatest way to proselytize. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> We're proselytize and maybe prostitute our, our young women. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely debatable on which one it actually was, for sure. For sure, yeah. So, um, how did you feel going into that relationship, though, knowing that you know you had maybe limited say into how that went? Um, I had been in there since I was eight. Hmm. It's not like I had a real. I mean, it was not my idea of what I wanted necessarily, but I, I don't know at the time if I had a real idea of what I wanted. I didn't, I didn't think at the time that I had a choice about anything. I thought that I was on some spiritual God path. Like there was this, there was this, and I think that that's, that there's a lot of religions that you fall into that. It's like, you don't really have a choice about your life. You're doing what God tells you or, you know, this path that you're being told, like, especially since I had been there since I was eight. Like there was this expectation about, you know, spirituality and and what we were supposed to be and how we were supposed to be different and how we were supposed to change the world and like all this different kind of stuff. So it was like that was and this promise that we were going to be um, have a better life than our parents had because we had our because we, we had seen different things. Like there was always this big show of stuff that people had been through. Like if you had had a traumatic life, I mean, you knew everything about everybody way more than you should ever know about anybody, in my opinion. I think it's fine if people want to share about their life, but they would, again, press on any pain point that anybody had and, and, and you know, just shove it down your throat. So, you know, by the time you got to that, it was just like, oh, well, I don't want to be that. I don't want to get into that kind of dysfunction. I don't want to be unhappy because I don't listen. So this idea that if you listen and you follow the teaching, that you're not going to have any of those problems. And I think that that was... For me, it was like, okay, so then I had my kids and I thought I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing. We were not in a happy relationship. And I have two amazing kids that I absolutely fucking adore. But, and they're, you know, they're adults now. But at the time, I mean, anybody around us knew how bad it was because we were always fighting. It was very, it was, it was really bad. And then we, um, and then he left because we were in a cult. So, um, which good for him, you know, um, but I was, and, and I, and I don't know that we were close enough that I would have ever gone with him anyway. Really? Well, I mean, our our relationship was so strained. I don't, I don't see how we could have existed outside of that. 
And you guys were still pretty young at this point, I'm guessing. Uh, Yeah, I was 20. I think I was still 21. 21 when when the split happened. Yeah, this was this was right before September 11th. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we, uh, it was the August before September 11th, actually, and I and I remember that because I got served papers the day after September 11th for, for divorce. The, for the divorce. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and then there I am. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, at that point, there I am. I have two kids. I have no skills. I have a GED. I've taken a couple college classes, but not enough to get anything. And the only person I've ever worked for is. Uh, my dad, right, and another family business. But at this point, did you have any intention of leaving the community, or did you feel like you were going to stay? Because when you were going through your initial thoughts about the relationship, you started to mention or, or touch on this idea of purpose, like there's this greater thing that you're all working toward. You know, I mean, there's there's you know, you have a lot of people there that you feel close to, but then they could you know, sell you down the river the next day too. That was kind of the way that you always felt. You, you, you live in a extreme state of anxiety all the time, extreme. Like there is always this feeling in the middle of your gut that you don't know when the house is going to fall, you know, because the processing part of it, they would, you never knew, like you could get a phone call at any time to come to a process where you're going to get emotionally beat down for hours for something that really was not a big deal. And because of that, you live in so much anxiety that you don't really know. It's not like you, you're, you're living in fear. You're living in this world that you don't have a way to even navigate outside of. So you're stuck on so many levels. Like, I don't, like I, I don't think that people quite understand the psychology and the damage that comes from that kind of stuff and you could compare it to a lot of different things it doesn't just have to be living in a cult I just think that has a little bit of more extremeness to it but I mean you could cut you could it could be the same as being in an abusive relationship you just can't see anything out and because you're in so much anger and fear and um, you know desperation you don't see anything outside of that so there I am and yeah I had two kids and in the middle of getting a divorce. And I mean, I, I'm like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? And at the time, you know, there was, and there was all of these shifts that went on over the years of, you know, that you were supported as long as you lived and worked in a family business. But then there would be these moments where they would come down on people and be like, you're not doing enough, you know? And there, I mean, there was, there was processes over all kinds of stuff and it really crude, cruel, mean stuff was said to people. I mean, every name in the book was thrown at people at any given time. You know, I mean, really abusive terms. Any any F word, C word, B word, you know, all of them were used on everybody at every given time, you know. So so you you also didn't have much of a self-esteem of what you could do even if you did leave. So was the processing something that you yourself were basically a victim of? Everybody was a victim of. Really? Can you walk me through maybe a situation that you experienced? Give me some color around what that looked like. Do you remember a particular instance? Oh my God, there's so many. There's so many. So I think I think one of the things that a lot of um, a lot of you know groups do is shame is such an incredibly powerful thing that they use against people, and they they definitely used a lot of shame against people. I remember one time they called all of the young couples, and when I say young couples, there was probably ten couples. I'm gonna guess off the top of my head. Like teenage type couples or? Uh, everywhere from, yeah, teen teen to early 20s. Okay. Yeah, probably. 
called them all to um, a room and then began digging into all of their um, their sexual habits and basically what was and wasn't allowed. And then they would get into, so there was a big one that they always liked to do, which was called out of integrities, which is where you had to say who it is you were attracted to. So if you want to just like throw a bomb in the middle of a bunch of people, it's, it was, they did it all the time. It was like, it was, I don't, I still not really sure what the purpose behind it was. So it's like you're in a relationship, but they want you to say if you're attracted to someone else. Exactly. Just to create conflict, I'm guessing. I, that's what I'm guessing too at this point. So they would do that, but then, so this one, they had to, they did this whole thing and rounded everybody up in the room and basically was like, we want to know what you're doing in the bedroom. You're not allowed to have any secrets. And I think at that point, that was, that was a real defining moment for me on a lot of different levels. So first off, I mean, it became one of those things where I knew that I couldn't even be close to my own husband. We hadn't been together very long, but I knew that there was no safety there. And it also makes it so you go incredibly, become incredibly internal about everything too, because there is no safety anywhere. So you become just a, um, a ball and you're just, you have this outside way that you present yourself to everybody because you don't have a choice. So there's the part of you that everybody sees. And then you have this other part of you that's just this underground thing um, that you lie about. And so you're incredibly unconnected to anything. So, and, and, and you also search for a lot of approval and you also search for other people to tell you what you should be doing because you don't know and you're so beside yourself about everything that you are doing. So, yeah, that was, that was a particular process where everybody, and there was, you know, screaming, yelling, who's doing what wrong and who's doing this wrong. And I mean, I remember one guy who was there and I mean, this one, this is like one that anybody who was there still remembers this moment. And it's like, he said that he, had seen a girl and that he thought she was bubbly and he never lived that down. Like, like you would have thought he had, you know, been going on doing deep, dark porn the way he was treated after that (laughs) incident. But that was the way it was. Like it didn't matter what you were doing, even if it was something really minor, it would be blown so out of proportion that you were like, Oh my God, I'm a horrible person. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, yeah. I mean, that's such an innocuous comment. Yeah. Oh, so-and-so was bubbly. Well, that's a compliment. There was nothing innocuous. That's crazy. Yeah, it sounds like some POW type shit was going down in there. Like psychological. Right? It was. <laughs> yeah, it was. Like, and so a lot of people are like, oh, it wasn't that bad. I was like, I was like, well, obviously you haven't really gotten in touch with that <laughs> shit because that shit was horrible. Yeah, that's nuts, man. It sounds like they took some like personal development tenets and keys and terms and then just mutated the fuck out of them. <laughs> Because, I mean, like, processing is a term that's used to guide someone to their answer. It's like when you process someone, you ask them questions and you let them speak and you find out where they're at and then you offer advice if they want it. But you're not telling them to tell you what they did in the bedroom or who else they're attracted to. I mean, this is just crazy. Oh, yeah. No, it was was really ugly. Yeah. So at what point... In your mind, did you start to register? You know what? This isn't how life should be or could be. Um, I mean, there was there was obviously different defining moments that happened over the years. I wouldn't say you always want to act like like there was this big like turning point where it's like right. you know you run away and you're like freedom. It's you a know? Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Disney movie. It's like all of a sudden everything was wonderful <laughs> and Prince Charming showed and they up lived or happily whatever. Ever after. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's not, it's these different moments over time where you finally just like not going to do it anymore. And so 
first after I had my kids, that was a wake up moment because there was all these different things over the years that I had done to, that I felt like I was doing to serve and help other women in the collective and in the community. And then I felt like as a single mother, I didn't get a lot of that returned because things changed. So I had babysat for free for years. And the next thing I know, I have my kids and I have to pay to babysit on jobs that I'm not get, really getting paid at. Do you know what I'm saying? So it was like, okay, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. So, so the financial workings of things had started changing over the years. And so that was one of the things that happened. And I was like, okay, well, this doesn't really seem like the happy, loving people that I thought that I was in. So it was just like, you realize the hip hop, you realize the hypocrisies. And then, um, you know, I had kind of gotten out for a little while and I was, you know, I got in a relationship for a while and it was a really dysfunctional relationship because if you're in that, you're going to attract really dysfunctional relationships. That's just, that's the way it is. You don't come out of that and attract somebody really with their shit together. You have no low, you have no esteem. You're going to attract somebody who probably doesn't have any either. Who sees you the way you see you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I do. And then, you know, I was kind of out with that for a little while, but then uh, as that began breaking apart, it was, that's used against you, right? Well, look what you did. It was like, you know, it was like, that's what happens when you stray, you know? I mean, that, not that was, not that that was ever said, but there was, and after that one, I mean, I felt so humiliated and shamed by that whole experience. And so then I started having a lot of physical problems. You know, I think my body finally just started shutting down, like the amount of stress over the years. So I ended up having to, um, and that was about when I was about 30 by then. And I had, um, I ended up having to get heart surgery, not like open heart surgery, but it was heart surgery. Like I had fainted at work at the time and I had been going to a doctor and I was, you know, I was in a really bad place. And that was a big wake up call for me. And I was like, I need to do what's best for me and my kids. And I can't deal with this stuff. And anytime anybody would talk to me about anything going on with anybody, I would jump into these, um, which what I thought they were was panic attacks, but my heart would begin racing out of my chest. So, and I, and that was what I ended up getting surgery for. But at the time I thought it was panic attacks. And so somebody would say something about something go, and I, just, I realized I literally couldn't take it. I was triggered by everything. So the most I started doing, I basically started cutting myself off from everybody and I'd go to work and I'd come home and I'd just do, do stuff with my kids. So at that time, um, I decided to move to Texas with a friend who she was the daughter of the leaders, her and her husband and their kids. But me and her had been close. She's very not, she's a very dysfunctional person, unfortunately. Uh, you can imagine if your parents were called leaders, you know, you'd probably have some I issues. I can't imagine. <laughs> Sometimes I think my parents were. <laughs> so we moved to Austin, which was amazing for me. Didn't last for her and her husband very long. They ended up coming back not too long after. Um, but I was really, and, and, it, was, and it, was, it was hard to move to because at the time my mother was not, my mom did not approve of me moving. And so me and my mom were going at it a lot before I left. I was like, I was going to ruin my life by making this change. And I was like, and I just, I don't know. I was just, I was like, I got to do this for me and my kids. Now I came back and jumped right back into it mm. because until you fix it, you're just going to keep getting your bet. You can go to a different place and jump into the same situation or you can go back to the same situation. So I came back and I just jumped right back into it. 
But I mean, I think being away a little bit of time when I came back, it became more obvious some of the things that were not right and dysfunctional and stuff like that. And then it's just, you know, by in, I had finished, finished my degree around then, my bachelor's in psychology. Where did you go to school? I went online. It was really what all I could do with yeah. having two young kids That's and moving across states, yeah. you know, and back. Um, I actually got it in a year less than most people get their bachelor's. I got, I knocked it out in like three years Amazing. with two kids and working wow. full time. I was waitressing and stuff. That's impressive. When I do something, I go all in. <laughs> I see that. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Then I moved back and it just, it, it, same old thing, same old thing. You know, I was in another relationship that was not great. He, he um, latched on pretty hard to all the cult stuff. I don't, I think from his own dysfunction, obviously. Um, and there was a lot of problems that happened through that. And then me and him broke up. And then after that, I, um, it just started getting more and more distant with one thing after another. And then as my kids got older, it was, it was really interesting. I mean, me and my sister and our kids, me and my older sister, I mean, we had as much as we never could stand up for ourselves. We had kids who didn't, didn't take shit from no one. (laughs) So it was, you know, I mean, we've talked about it even since then, just being like, you know, appreciating the fact that we didn't ingrain what was ingrained to us into our kids. That's a feed in and of itself there. Right. Yeah, for sure. So then after that, we, um, there was just, there were some little things that happened over the time. Um, and it was just, my sister had got, my younger sister got married. Her wedding was beautiful and amazing except for the sermon that was done by the guy who leads the cult and he did, went into this whole thing about aliens that was totally fucking bizarre <laughs> and there was a lot of things that happened around that my daughter my daughter had gotten in trouble with you know her friend which was the leader's daughter's daughter too me and her had kids the same age you know because we were all having kids at 19 right. um, so they got in trouble and it just me and her started getting more and more separate after that incident because because she's not the person that anybody could say anything to. Everybody tipped. I mean, that's that. That's where the a lot of the separation began happening. Is that you realize there was not a, it was not a relationship with people. It was a dictatorship, and so it didn't go both ways. Right. You know, they would tell you how it should be, but you could never. You know, it's like, and you have this idea that your family and your friends and you're all these different things, but then you realize. That nobody can say, and and her specifically, even her own sisters, probably still lie to her to this day. Nobody tells that woman the truth. It's really unfortunate. You're talking about the cult leader's daughter, mm-hmm. the see. youngest, the youngest one. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So, w- at what point in your life do you consider yourself, you know, sort of fully, you know, excommunicated? You know, I know that's the wrong word, but you know, you 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 fully separated yourself from this group of people, or have you? No, yeah, totally I have. I mean, there's a few people who are kind of on the outskirts who, you know, but no, I don't have anything to do with any of the, any of the any of them. Um, I'm trying to think what year it was. I don't know. It was right after my sister's wedding, however long she's been married. I'm trying to think. But Maybe. you're coming out, you know, I'm assuming some somewhere around your early 30s at this point, you know, um, leaving the leaving the community sort of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But on and off mid yeah, early to mid-30s is really where I got out. And you've uh, achieved a, a psych degree at this point? Yes. And you've been pretty much waged 
you know, there's been some psychological warfare pretty much waged on you at this point in your life, right? Yes. So what are you seeing or what are you learning as you're going through your classes and you're studying psychology? What did you notice in your younger self that were maybe deficiencies that you could have been working on? What programs did you exit the community with that were sort of debilitating aside from the self-esteem thing? I don't know if the psychology so much did it for me. I think the psychology maybe, maybe gave me some different things. I just started, I just started on this search to try and fix different things and it was and question things that had happened. And that was the big thing for me. And then I, you know, had gotten different jobs over the year that opened me up to different perspectives too. So I worked for a doctor for a long time. Um, and she was in the chiropractic field. And I'd always been on the on the um, more holistic side of things and stuff. And there was a lot of things I saw through through that, which is much more holistic and much more positive. And I was like, oh, I was like, okay. And it was interesting because it was it was some of the things that I'd grown up with without a lot of the um, abuse, without a lot of the abuse, without a lot of the anger, without a lot of the alcoholism. And I was like, okay, so maybe you can have some of this and not all the anger and hatred and bullshit and everything else. And so it was learning how to begin to bring those things. And, and honestly, one of the things I always did was read. Every time I had something going on, I would go to the library or the bookstore and I would pick up a book and I would go, how do I figure How do I work on this? What I, I needed some, I needed outside perspective. And, you know, for a long time, that was especially, you know, the access to internet these days is much different than it was even 10 years ago and what's out there. So, I mean, a lot of times it was books. So I'd go to the library and I'd go to the psychology section and I would just like look for different things that, that I felt like I wanted to work on. Did you have any particular go-tos? Um, trying to think. I know you mentioned that you were a fan of Jung. Yes, I did. Well, yeah, because of all the psychology stuff, I definitely get into, I definitely went into a lot of that. Um, there's another one. I can't think of his name at the moment. If it comes to me, I'll bring it up. But he, he was, he was, a he was another one. I liked a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I just, and it's funny. My grandmother was always, she, she had a psychology background. I ended up getting a ton of her psychology books, but I mean, yeah, I'd read some of that stuff here and there. And that was, that helped open up my mind, but also, um, I got more into phys- So I had a lot of, because I had the physical health problems, so I was always looking at that kind of stuff too. So I began digging into, and my favorite part of when I was going through psychology, I mean, one of my favorite classes is I started getting into um, the spiritual aspects of health and healing. And it was like somebody had brought the science with the spiritual side of things. And I was like, okay, I can, because I, I had this huge disconnect. And I think a lot of people could relate to this. Like I had this huge disconnect with don't tell me to do it because of blind faith. Like there, there needs to be a reason and you need to explain it to me. And it's not that I don't have a feeling about things, but I don't want to just be told that this is how it is and just have faith. Like there was this, there's, and I think that growing up in what I grew up in or this, a lot of religious dogma that goes into this idea of like faith because we say so. It's not faith based on something that can be quantified. And when you get into more of a spiritual aspect of health and healing and you, I mean, there's a ton of science behind all that stuff. And so I remember taking this class that I was fascinated by. And so I just, I, I began latching onto that like nothing else. And it, and I remember it was like, they went into things on meditation and prayer and, and the science behind them. 
and they went into the effects that they can have from a scientific perspective. And I mean, I remember this, this whole part that we did on meditation and how they teach these different meditations to people who are going into surgery and how when you teach people who you can actually have them do a meditation that helps them bleed less, you know, and, and that fascinated me. And I was like, oh, so this, you know, this isn't just bullshit. There's, there's actually something behind it, you know, where I've been told to do these different things, but there was never, you know, it was just like this ethereal idea of like being a better person and getting to God by a bunch of people who were horribly abusive. It's like, it doesn't match. So it was this path of learning how to get that. And then health was a huge thing because my health was shit. I mean, I was 30 years old and I felt like I was 50. I feel like in better health now at 40 years old than I've been in my entire life, emotionally, physically, and and otherwise. And, you know, I've, I mean, in the last... I don't know. I've got a, I've got a, I've got a wall of race medals that I've gotten since 2014. And, you know, which was when I did my first half marathon, actually, actually 2013 was my first medal, I think was before that. But yeah, I have a wall of race medals that I've gotten, but it was, but I mean, I used to have chronic migraines, headaches, and, and, and a lot of people coming from that kind of background has a lot of chronic issues because obviously we're going to have chronic medical problems when you're emotionally that beaten down. Right. You know, but it's all tied together. So it's, and then, and I learned a lot of that through chiropractic and that whole background, the, the emotional effects of disease. And so found that fascinating, then dug more into nutrition. And then, um, you know, through that, after leaving, it was also working on all these different things on working on my home life, which me and my two kids and having two teenagers who were, you know, getting in trouble all the time and turning that around, which was huge. So figuring out how to work relationships and why relationships are the way they are and understanding how um, we have to ultimately take responsibility for the relationships that are in our life. And that was huge too, between the people who were in my life that were incredibly toxic, but also allowing people in my life who are incredibly toxic. Like there's, you know, when you come from that kind of dysfunction, you're going to draw those kind of people to you until you learn how to do something different. You know, you can't, you can't, people can't love you more than you love yourself. Maybe your mother, but that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) True story. Yeah. It's interesting that you brought that up, uh, you know, and and you mentioned this earlier that you're only really going to attract someone who sees you the way that you see yourself. And so as you exited, I'm curious, how did you see yourself aside from the self-esteem piece? Was there another part of your psyche that you hadn't really explored and gained an awareness of how you were showing up and maybe creating detrimental, you know, effects in your life? It's funny because I still, you know, I still had relationships. I, you know, I still had relationships after that and worked for different people that I was still feeling very undervalued and people and friends would, that I had were like, why are you doing this? Like you make no money. And I was like, yeah, but it's really great though. You know, that kind of stuff. And like over the years, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. No, I don't have to do that. And also realizing that, um, you know, a big one for me has been realizing that not everything's black and white. Like my biggest thing that I do now is like, well, how could I make that happen? You know, and, but there was a lot of, there's a lot of ingrained ideas. The fun thing about getting into finance, which in the beginning was, I was like, well, I could help other people figure out their money and I can figure out my own money. 
I didn't have a fine. I, I didn't have a finance any financial base growing up. I didn't know how to handle finances. I didn't know how to put away for retirement. I didn't know how to do any of these things. So it was like I get into finance and going, okay, well, I'm going to figure out how to do this. And then I, and then realizing how you know it it was such an interesting fit to go into that coming from especially being in my 20s and not being able to support myself at all. Like being a mother and having two kids and not being able to support myself and having an ex who had left who didn't pay me any child support for a few years. And he did eventually, but you know, so there's, and, and that financial dependency. So it was like, I'm going to figure out how to be, and, and ideas about money. And my gosh, so many people have these ideas about money. Like still, it still blows my mind, but being able to change that and realizing that we are really what we believe on every level whether it's finances, relationships, um, our health, and, and that we have the ability to change any of them at any given time. And that's really, it's like walking through this whole experience of my life has given me the power to be like, none of this is set in stone. Like, you, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you've been through. Like, I'm, I'm a big, I think it's, is, I think it's Einstein quote, you know? You can either believe that everything's a miracle or nothing's a miracle. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely believe everything's a miracle. It's beautiful. Like, and I've come from this dysfunction and like, I don't mind talking about it, but I, but I feel like it's such, it's, it's funny because even talking about it today, it feels like it's so far from where I am now that it's narrating a story that's really surreal. Yeah, it's true. I mean, when you look back on your memories, you can rewrite the book. That's what they're there for really to, to mine lessons, but they can't have any control over you once you start to do that. Right. You know? And it's amazing to hear your story because you've overcome so many different things. The psychological abuse is one thing, right? But then the financial piece, I think, is something that everyone gets regardless of their experience. Everyone I talk to has some form of money program. In my house, money was something other people had, you know? Right. We never had it, you know? Um, One side of my family was wealthy. One side of my family wasn't. But it was always something that other people had. And so that was one of the programs that I had to work on. And so when you started talking about money, I'm curious, how do you view money now? What is it for you? So I, one book that I absolutely love is called um, Connected to Goodness. And it's written by a guy, and he, I can't remember his name at the moment, but um, he, he was, he's a, a friend or a colleague of the real Jerry Maguire. So he, and it's a fantastic book, but his thing is help a lot of people, have a lot of fun and make a lot of money. And I love that because that's what I, that's what I really want to do. I want to help a lot of people. I want to have a lot of fun doing it and I want to make a lot of money doing it. And I, and I think people, especially that I'm a woman too, right? There's this judgment about the idea of making a lot of money because there's all these ideas about, you know, you can be happy or you can be, you can be happy or you can have money. They, the two can't exist together. And it's like, says who? And money is just one of those things that, um, and this is, it, it was something I had to relearn because, so partially because I had, because my grandparents were wealthy and because our grandpa- my grandparents were so used against us in so many ways. So, so, and I think that was in, in an attempt to eventually be able to get their wealth, but it was this, that they were bad people because they had money kind of thing. And it was, and it was interesting getting a little bit of a relationship before they passed away, um, I wish it had happened sooner, but you know, those you can't change those things. But realizing 
to that my grandparents weren't the horrible people that I grew up thinking that they were because of that experience. And so th- those are the things where it's like going back and going, okay, that was somebody else's idea that wasn't, and, and there's a lot of ideas out there that come from other people, and you have to choose the ones that you want to believe or not believe, and you can change them any given day. And so money is a huge one that I see, especially being in the finance world and having, having um, um, you know, uh, finance licenses, you know, because I've got different finance licenses, you know. Um, but going through and sitting down with couples all the time who have ideas about money and what it means about you, and it, it's, it's a tool like food. That's really what I say. It's a tool like food, and you can use it to do good or you can use it to do bad. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And I think it only enhances what's already there. Sure. I think if you're a wonderful person and you have more money, you're going to do more wonderful things. And I think if you're a shitty person and you have more money, you're probably going to still be a fucking shitty person. Yeah, so. I agree 100%. I think money makes you more of who you are. Yeah. 100%. So when you're talking to, to people or in the past when you've talked to people about money, what were some of the biggest misconceptions that were print, presented to you as a financial advisor or an insurance person in that particular role? Um, it's funny. It, it, it's, it's funny what people say they can and can't afford. I changed my mind about different words that, so I think that you should never say I can't afford it. And I think that if you want something, you'll figure out a way to make it a priority if it really means something to you. Um, and I think that, that that's one thing that I try to teach people to do all the time anyway. It's like, if there's something that means something to you, instead of going, how can I, instead of going, I can't afford it, go, how can I make this happen? Like there's, and, and that's just to open your mindset versus closing it. If you say, I can't afford something or we can't do that, it automatically shuts you down. So, um, and it's something that I've worked on reteaching to my ki- my own kids because, you know, being a single mom, there was definitely, oh, we can't afford that. We can't afford that. All that kind of stuff to my kids. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like I've taught them this and how do I unteach them this or teach them something different now? I mean, my daughter calls me for something now. It's like, sure, honey, we're going to figure it out. You know, if it's not today, we'll figure it out if it's a need. And that's if it's a huge. want, we might do it too. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with the the mindset book. Yeah. Carol Dweck. Uh, I don't know. Uh, no, no, I don't think uh, I've read that one. She basically talks about that very concept. You know, you can have... Uh, you know, the ability to see yourself as someone who can learn new skills or you can have this mindset that you that everything is fixed and that it is what it is and that basically you're in a caste system sort of a thing. And right. You, you got what you got kind of a thing. And <laughs> Which uh, is definitely how I grew up. <laughs> exactly. Definitely how you grew up. And it's, it's interesting to me to sit across from you and listen to you speak because having been exposed to that for so many years, you're sitting across from me telling a totally different story. It's like you just shook off the programming. It's like, no, this doesn't apply. I'm going to open myself up to new ideas. I think a lot of people would come out of that and be a withdrawn and be very closed and sort of static in their way of thinking. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I think that, I think that that could be true. Um, I think it, you know, I think it, it's interesting because the more I talk about it and I decided to start talking about it openly really just because I realized that there's a lot of people out there who have, Mm-hmm. and they're probably people you've met and you just don't know it because they don't share it because they don't want to talk about it, you know, and 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 because there's so much shame attached to it too. So I could act like a victim up until a certain age, right? Like, oh, my parents my parents took me to this and my parents did this to me type of thing. I, I could do that up to a certain age, but when you stay for an extra 15 years past that <laughs> and do it to your own children, yeah. then it's on you. 
For sure. You know, I mean, up until a certain age, you're responsible, you're responsible for your own life. And you can sit and say, I had this victimology type of thing that happened to me. And I think that there's a moment where you do have to be a victim to things just to get through that emotional state. But then you have to take responsibility and go, okay, this did happen to me, but what am I going to do with it now? Like, how am I going to overcome this and pass this? Because just like the emotional side of things, I mean, I, one of my, one thing I like to compare it to is it's like carrying around a backpack of rocks and everything that's done to you is a rock that you've thrown in that backpack. And at some point they're going to weigh you down and prevent you from going where you want to go, or you're going to have to start letting some of them go or they will drown you. And I personally have seen, and I mean, I, I mean, I have things that come up all the time. I mean, it's not like I, it's not like I just like all of a sudden overcame all these things. I'm still overcoming all of them. Like there's, I have epiphanies all the time. I mean, it wasn't until I don't know how many years, not that many years ago that I had the epiphany that my husband left me because we lived in a cult. And it was like, oh, I I was like, yeah, I get it. And I was like, God, good for him. Like, I just had a completely different epiphany about it. And then part of it's been, like, raising kids and getting kids to a certain age where I, like, look at my kids and I'm like, oh, okay. And they go through something. And and part of it is still, like, I'm still learning how to redo things with my kids. And I have really open conversations with them. I mean, you know, I mean, like, having the conversation with my daughter when she spent... Like she was talking to friends of hers, this was a few years back, talking to friends of hers about her childhood and all this different stuff. And then she decides to look it up and she sees all this stuff online about what a cult it is. (laughs) And she calls me up and she's like, I didn't know it was a cult like that. Like I knew it was, you know, because I mean, I remember when I, I mean, I didn't initially say, oh, this was a cult. I mean, I was going to therapy and my, my therapist at the time all of a sudden says to me, he's like, He's like, you've never used the word cult. The, the day that I used the word cult, up until then, it was like, it's it's a little weird. It's a little cult-like. We would, yeah, cult-like in quotes. You know, that was the one we used a lot. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, it was like, oh no, wait, no, it was it was definitely a full-blown cult. And um, so my daughter calls me up and she's like, oh my god, she's like, it was a cult, mom. And I read all this stuff and blah blah blah. I was like, well, some of that's true and some of it's not, but. She's like, why didn't we ever talk about this? I was like, honestly, I didn't know how to talk to you about it. And you were younger and I'll answer any questions you have, honey. You know, so we're really open about a lot of stuff now, but it's, it's still a consistent, like, I don't know. I, I don't know if you, when you come from any kind of different thoughts and ideas or you're raised with different things, if you don't consistently go back and go, oh, wait a minute, that's something I'm, I learned. I don't, I don't have to do that anymore. That's how I feel. I don't know if other people feel that way or not, but like coming from different things that I know are wrong or just like taking a look and going, okay, was that wrong and why is it wrong? And oh, I, I, can, I can choose to believe differently. Yeah, I like the way you framed that. I mean, you framed it as a journey from, you know, when you were talking about the therapy sessions, right? It became, you got to the point where you could say the word cult, right? Right. And, and it took time for you to lead up to that realization. And I think that's the way we all operate on some level. And it comes back to the, you know, the Disney movie reference from earlier, right? <laughs> like we're trained and we're, we're, we're sort of conditioned to believe that, you know, this magic moment's going to happen and everything's going to be different and, right. and perfect and wonderful because I bought this course or I read this book or right. I took this class or whatever the thing may be. But then in, in typical North American fashion, we forget that we have to actually do the work daily. You know, we have to wake up and put our shoes on and actually go do some hard shit, you know, and get through it. Yes. And I feel like as I walk around 
especially in North America where it's really so easy to live nowadays Yes, that people have separated themselves from challenge in a lot of ways and don't want to do that, even though that's probably where their transformation lies. And I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. I like that question. So I am a big believer you can have pain of growth or you can have pain of lack of growth and you get to choose which one you have. So either, either one, either one is the same. I mean, I think the outcome is very different. I mean, and I think that, I think that challenge is one of the most amazing things that anybody can do. And I always go back to the physical stuff just because being a runner and I mean, (laughs) today, I got up this morning because I'm now training for my second triathlon and I've decided to do an Olympic distance and I've decided to give myself all of seven weeks to get ready for it. Now I'm coming out of another triathlon, so it's not like I'm not totally trained, somewhat trained, but I've only had a bike for a couple months, not even less than two months, you know, and if you've ever ridden a tri bike, you're clipped in and everything. And so I get up early this morning and I, I've got an hour of cycling and I've got about an hour of swimming to do. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just bike to the pool. (laughs) So I I bike to the pool and on my way back. And I mean, that's a lot of exercise for me. Right. Two hours, you know. For anyone, really. (laughs) So I'm I'm biking back and there I am and I'm just on the side of the road and I've got one foot clipped in and one foot out and all of a sudden I just start going down and you got one foot clipped in and you just, and I just, it was just standing derailment and, you know, busy, busy <laughs> intersection. So you're like, you know that everybody just saw you just face plant to the side. And I mean, you know, there's a, just, it's, you're going to, life is never going to be something other than that. You're still going to have these moments where you get a little beat up here and there, but you might as well do it chasing the things that mean something to you. And I mean, being, I mean, part of the reason I got into finance is because it was a, it was a way and a means to being able to be in a different financial position myself. I was like, I am going to, I've conquered this area of my life and I've conquered that area of my life and I will not be poor anymore, you know? And that was, that was my goal. And I'm not going to be the person who retires with no money. And I'm not going to be the person who has, and it just, it was like, it was a challenge for me. And then even last year, I just got to this point where I was like, I like this, but it doesn't make me want to get out of bed in the morning. Like being a financial advisor for people does not make me want to get out of bed in the morning. And then and that was where it was like, okay, what does make me want to get out of bed in the morning? And I started just reviewing everything and it was like, I have done all this stuff and I've overcome things that a lot of people have a lot of trouble getting through, you know, from physical stuff, from nutritional stuff, from relationships. I mean, I went from once, once we left, it's like, I went from my kids getting in trouble with the cops on a regular basis. You know, I mean, I had the cops at my door several times (laughs) for different reasons. I mean, between my son and his friends riding around smashing mailboxes to <laughs> which every guy tells me they all did, yeah, but they just didn't all get, they didn't all get caught for it. No, definitely not. Um, to, you know, my kids smoking weed and getting in trouble for that kind of stuff. And then now, I mean, my daughter is at ASU and got a full ride scholarship. Um, and she's in the honors college. My son, as a foreman for a construction company. So, I mean, full turnaround a few years later. And that was through an enormous amount of work to try and figure out how to do it. And there was a lot of times in the beginning where it was like, 
if my kids weren't such assholes, I'd be a better mother, you know, (laughs) but at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, that's not a very responsible stance as the adult who lives in the house. So, um, I really just began to dig in and work on, work on myself. And the more you work on yourself, the things around you just, just begin to change. And, and a lot of it was putting in different habits. I mean, I remember when I really began to meditate and really fully began to meditate and I did it every day and it just calmed me down. Like I felt like the edge was taken off and I was like, that's amazing. And I could tell when I, when I miss it for a few days, like all of a sudden I'd get edgy and I, even to this day, I could go a good three days and maybe a week at this point, but if I'm not meditating on a very regular basis, I all of a sudden get edgy and I'm like, oh, time to put that back in. Yep. So I never let it go for more than a day or so at this point. Um, very ritual. And I mean, I think it's just gratitude. You know, that's one of the things I began putting in. Um, I was huge. That was incredibly huge. Um, and that's... and. So I built this program based on all the things I've done to fix all these things in myself because I started looking around and realizing that other people weren't necessarily doing the same thing. Right. And I figured, okay, if it's just a matter of putting in new habits to change the things in your life, anybody can do that. Mm -hmm. And I can teach them how to do it because I've done it in every area of my life. So, and I always had a passion for it. Like between the psychology and the spiritual side of it and just this this place of being able to help people conquer their mental game too. I mean, it's, it's a big thing of just weeding out the negative self-talk, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people I read over the years who talk about that. And I think most people don't try to train their brain. So that's one thing. So that's the main part of my program is the mental part. It's like, if I can help you train your brain to get out, to weed out some of the negative bullshit, then you can change anything. Right. You know? And so and that part, you know, 28 days. And it's really just to help people get the habits in place. And so a big part of it is just first, let's recognize what it is you are doing. You know, what is it you're saying to yourself? Like, what is that inner self-talk that you're saying? Is it, oh, shit, I fucked that up. Oh, I'm stupid. Oh, this. Oh, that. Oh, I hate the way I look. Oh, I, you know, I mean, there's, there's, people are habitual anyway. 50% of what you say to yourself is exactly the same thing every day. And so, if you can just change a few of those. And so there's this idea that, oh, we just need to have more positive um, affirmations. And that's a great idea, but people don't ever break down why positive affirmations don't work. And I don't know about you, but I've met a million people who do positive affirmations, but because they don't believe them, they're not actually connecting. Yeah, they're lying to themselves. Right. Which makes it worse. Right. Yeah. And there's there's this 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 mind and heart connection that I think that people are really looking for these days. And it's a matter of trying to teach people how to create that mind heart connection, because when you connect those two, that's when you really get centered in who you are. And then you can actually be really powerful in the things you do. And it doesn't matter what you do, but you got to weed out and see what the negativity is that's going in. You got to rework them. So if you say, Oh God, I suck at this. And you go, I'm amazing at this. Your, your, your brain is like, fuck you. Like, we know that's not true. (laughs) So, so it's like, but there's an in-between there, you know, it's like, you have to go into, okay, maybe I'm not very good at this, but I can get better. Yeah, for sure. I had a mentor one time go through this sort of exercise with me where we were doing the affirmations thing and, 
And then he broke it down and said, look, you're lying. You know, you're <laughs> lying to yourself. You don't believe this. I can right. look at you and tell this, right? And so all you're doing is making it worse. And he, all he did was suggest that I change a word. He's like, st- right. instead of saying I am, you know, whatever this thing is right. that you're obviously not. Right. He says, change it to I allow myself to be. Right. Right. And in that place, you have the freedom to actually move into that. And it's not a lie. Right. You're telling yourself the truth and you're giving yourself permission to move down that pathway. And I always thought right. that was so profound and it's just changing a word, you know, right? so simple. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think any of this stuff is particularly rocket science, but I also don't think anybody's doing it either. That's the thing. No <laughs> one's doing it. Yeah. I'm sure. not, I mean, my program is not something that you could not go and find all the pieces to on different areas by searching Mm-hmm. You know, I have pulled all these things from a lot of different other things that I've learned over the years, you know. Right. I mean, a lot of the most successful people are doing a lot of this stuff. I mean, they're they're making sure that they do these morning routines where they're doing meditation or they're doing, you know, and there's a billion books on them. But I don't think anybody else has a program that has all these different pieces that I have where I've pulled in here. We're going to work on your mindset and then we're going to work on relationships and nutrition and fitness and career and finance and fun should be in all of them and whatever and your values and spirituality should be in all of them so I don't have separate ones for those two because I think that they are throughout right and it's just such an interesting path you know like cult member I'll say in air quotes (laughs) to financial planner to life architect and you know you started talking about your program a little bit but I want to go into it a little bit deeper Um, you have this concept that you're calling 100 years of bliss yes and I think it's absolutely amazing and I'm wondering if you could break that down for us and then uh, talk a little bit more about how your program is structured. So the 100 years thing, and it was funny because um, I got the 100 years thing. I was like, okay, we have the genetic potential to be here for 100 years or more. And they're saying some of the kids, some of the babies that are being born uh, over the, this last decade and the following is going to be have the potential to live to 150. So. Mm-hmm. I might have to change the name of it. It's, right. But anyway. 100 years with Methuselah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I worked for the, uh, when I worked for the doctor I worked for, she used to always talk about like, you know, you're going to be here for 100. If you, if you knew how long you were going to be here, mm-hmm. how would you want that to look on a physical standpoint? And that was very eye-opening for me because I had never considered how long I would be on this planet. And I don't know if a lot of people look forward enough to think about that. But I, looking at my, um, my grandparents and stuff, I've had grandparents who've been lived to be 98 and I think that I'm in great health and plan to stay that way. And I want to be one of those. And I, and I remember seeing all these different people who were the eight, my grandparents didn't age great, although they lived to a very old age and all that kind of stuff. But you know, they kind of like I saw other people their age who were still running around. Like I used to have this woman, this, this woman used to come into one of the salons I worked at for a long time. And I mean, she would come in and she had this box of pictures with every famous person. And this is, you know, we didn't have phones that had pictures on them yet, right? She had this box of pictures with all these famous people, you know, uh, and she would show them all the time. And she was going to her grandkids things and her great grandkids. And I was just like, and she was 90 something years old. And I remember thinking my grandparents in their 80s were just not even kicking it like this lady. And I was like, is that an option? Like, do we get to choose that? I mean, is there something that we get to choose to create that? And that always fascinated me. Like that's one person goes one way, another person goes another way. And it's funny in selling insurance, I've seen a lot of the same things. I've talked to people who are in their 40s who sound like they're on death's door. 
and then talk to people who's 80 years old and who's in great health and probably going to be around maybe another 20 years or more. So I've lived so many years of my life in these different areas of, I mean, on some of my darkest days where I found myself in a corner crying in my bedroom. If there's an option to wake up every day excited and happy and choosing to live that way and help other people to do the same thing, that's 100 years of bliss. Mm. And so my the infinity symbol in my um, logo was based off of if you can help one person do that, the way that it affects everybody else. Because it wasn't just about the impact that it can have. When you, may, when you help one person change their mindset and change their life and not live in somebody else's shadows of what they should or shouldn't be or thought processes that don't serve them and really get grounded in who they are and connected to who they are, it has just this huge effect that ripples beyond. And it's funny. I, I mean, I remember a few years ago, once I started getting into exercising and I just started exercising for me. Like I just started running because I started running for therapy. Actually, my, my mom was diagnosed with cancer and I ended up joining team and training, um, because she had lymphoma and she's doing, she's doing great and recovered and did amazing. But, um, I got into that and it just became therapy. Like I would go run and people are like, I hate running. I'm like, I agree with you, but it's really good for me mentally. (laughs) (laughs) Like I can go out and was like, wipe the slate with, you know, I felt like I could wipe the slate and hires your vibration. You know, I think it totally hires your vibration, exercise, music, laughing. There's a lot of things that can just up your level. And so, where was I going? Totally lost my train of thought. (laughs) Um, So getting into that. I really totally lost it. That's all right. You were talking about the 100 years of bliss and the infinity symbol and how... I feel like it was going to be really profound. No, I'm uh, just kidding. <laughs> don't you hate when that happens, man? Yeah, it was, it was going to be really meaningful. You guys all missed it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, it'll come back to you. But while you're waiting for that to come back, tell me about this event that you have planned coming up. I know it's coming up uh, soon, yeah? Yeah, so August 24th. Okay. Um, it's going to be a day-long workshop. And um, I'm really excited about it. So... We are going to basically be working on the mental piece. Um, we're going to be, so I'm going to have actual life blueprints. So my whole basis is that I just give you a blueprint so you can change these things so that you can create the life you want to create. So it's um, f- working on whatever it is, whatever your goals may be. And so people are actually going to be filling those out. And we're going to be talking about how to uh revolve your life around your values and how to put different tools in place so that you can build whatever you want to build. And I like the light. The reason that I, you know, based it off of a blueprint is because really to me, it was, it was, how do I give people tools to create what they want to create? I didn't want it to be some dictation of what somebody else thinks you need to do for you. You, you are the only one who knows what you need. And you have to figure that out within yourself. And I can't help you figure that. I can help you figure that out, but I can't tell you what that is. So if I give you a hammer and some wood and some nails, you can go build a dog house. You can go build a mansion. You, I mean, you know, it's just a matter of how much you have. So my basis was like, how do I give you the tools to create what you want to create? And so um, we're going to, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're giving away a lot of great gifts. Um, have some other speakers um, including um, a fitness guy who has written a book called The Inner Circle named Michael Anders. We have also a Caitlin Barth who um, has a, she's a nutritional coach 
and then um, have a bunch of other people in store, a lot of different prizes, um, including being able to win my program. Um, tickets are tickets are on Eventbrite, but they're also on my Facebook. Um, so if they can go to, actually, I'm trying to remember what my Facebook is. My Facebook's Brooke Walker. And it's not, it's, oh, it's like bliss 100 years because they didn't have 100 years of bliss. So I can't remember exactly what the thing is, but I'll get that to you later. You can throw it in a link. For sure. Yeah. Definitely do that. Um, but my whole goal with it, so the name of the event is Ordinary Sucks. My my original name was How to Unfuck Yourself, but Ordinary Sucks goes better on Facebook. So, <laughs> so not everybody's still, not everybody's into the full cussing yet. So um, Ordinary Sucks, so how to create power in your home and work life. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, and my goal is to be able to help people to... Um, create something that they can actually take home and hang on their wall, kind of like their own little, um, what do you call them these days? Vision board type thing. Yeah, like a vision board. Mm -hmm. Um, Mind map, mind movie type thing. Yeah, yeah. That's cool stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited to check that out. Um, I I, I know Michael pretty well, actually. He was on uh, a couple months ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, for sure. So that's awesome stuff, man. And uh, I will definitely link all that up in the show notes for you. So um, tell me at this point in your life, after all these experiences and what you're creating, you know, what does success look like for Brooke Walker? That's a good question. My goal is just to always be growing in whatever I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I started getting into running, I did, uh, I did a half marathon and that was like bucket list, right? You know, I was like, there was nothing beyond that could that, you know, and then years later I ended up doing a full and I just started getting into triathlons and now my goal is to go do a half Ironman. Like when I had that goal of doing a half marathon, I would have never conceived of wanting to do a half Ironman. And I don't know. I mean, right now I can't conceive of going past a half Ironman. <laughs> People are, are you going to do a full? I'm like, oh, that's, that's just crazy talk. No, I'd never do that. So, uh, you know, I think success is always growing. I, and seeing that you're, you know, what would, what once was your bucket list becomes your baseline. For sure. You have know? you, have you seen uh, iron cowboy on Netflix? <laughs> no, dude, it's crazy. Um, you, you started talking about limits and, and bursting through them. This guy does uh, 50 Ironmans in 50 days in 50 different States. I didn't even know they had that many Ironmans. Well, he just, he, they don't. He just went and did one and, oh. and had to travel from state to state, sleeping like four and five hours a night. It was crazy. By the wow. T- by the time he's halfway through, he's like falling asleep on his bike. Oh, man. Have it's you seen crazy. the Bartlett Marathon? I haven't, no. Oh my God. You got to check that out. On I'll definitely check that, that out. That one's entertaining. That's that one's crazy. That one's more, the guy who creates those is kind of has a lot of fun with it, but. Is that the one that's like crazy out in the woods somewhere, Tennessee? Yep. And, Okay, maybe I have seen that one. Yep. Yeah, and you just do lap after lap as long as your feet can hold up. Yeah, basically, basically, and barely, not even, I think there's maybe one person who actually... It's like 100 miles or something through yeah, the woods. They, they're, doing, they're doing the extent of going up and down um, Everest a couple times or something over the few days that they do it. It's insane. It but is yeah, insane. no, I mean, so success, I don't know. I always be growing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I... I my goals right now, I want, I want to look back and be like, gosh, that looked like something that was going to be hard. And I'm so far past that. That's, that's what I want. You know, whether that's in this or in a million other things and ventures that come down the road. I mean, I feel like I've got a lot of time and a lot of life and a lot left and a lot more to give and a lot more to do. And 
I really enjoy my life and I want to continue to keep keep doing that and seeing where it goes and meeting I mean you know it's been fun since I've gotten into this it's just it's it's been amazing how much it's opened up and how many people that I've you know fallen into getting in touch with just through random connections you know like you um through Jocelyn and I mean getting getting in touch with Michael Anders that was that was again through somebody else who was you know I just like all of a sudden I'm just meeting all these amazing people mm-hmm. and it's funny how when you just follow and get get connected with who you who you're trying to be and follow follow what what the universe begins bringing you 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 meet some amazing people and it's I've had some conversations about things I would have never thought about even six months ago Mm. so I love it man just to continue expansion continue continue down that path for life I think is is the way to live and so before I ask my last question (laughs) let's tell everyone listening how they can get in touch with you Okay, they can definitely find me um, on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram, it is 100 Years of Bliss. Um, and then find me on Facebook, Brooke Walker. My page is 100 Years of Bliss, but I can't remember the tag, so I'll give you that later. And uh, then we'll my, my website is 100 Years of Bliss. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. So they can definitely go to my website at 100 Years of Bliss. Um, I'm going to have some fun stuff up within about a week, so I don't know how soon this goes out. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not before that's up. So last question is always the same. What does wellness mean to you? Um, I think wellness to me means navigating the craziness that we have in front of us and, and, and adapting to it and still being true to who we are. Mm. Well said. Wellness to me. Yeah. Well said, especially after all the experiences you've had, right? Right. Yeah. That, that makes perfect sense given the context. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So thank you so much for being up today. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed diving into your world. Your story (laughs) is absolutely amazing. We could probably sit here and talk another six hours, um, but I'm sure that you have other things that you want to do. So maybe we can do a part two at some point, but um, guys, when I write the book, yeah, when you write the book for sure. So guys, if you haven't already, be sure and dive into Brooke Walker's world. Remember she is a life architect. She's giving you a blueprint. She's got her event coming up. And be sure and check her out online. Look into the event. And if it's something that makes sense for you, be sure and support it. That's how you get to be where you want to be. So with that said, guys, this is Jason Archer on behalf of Brooke Walker signing off. And we'll see you in the next episode. Take care. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing, and by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.